I'm Roxanne Serta, and I'm the Acquisitions Editor for CNT Publishing. I've been acquiring books for nearly 20 years, and the past seven of those have been here at CNT. Through my job, I get the privilege of meeting countless designers, authors, and industry professionals who all do amazing things with their creativity. I'll be bringing some of those quilting and stitching personalities to this podcast to share their amazing stories and insider information. Download the latest episodes and get to know great crafters, learn the backstories behind events and people, and hear funny stories from people living the crafty life. Hi, I'm here today with Kathy Dowdy, recording at Fall Quilt Market in Houston, Texas. Kathy is a passionate quilter, a teacher, a shop owner, fabric designer, and author, among many other roles. Kathy and I have been working together on her books for more than seven years now. And Kathy, uh, thank you so much for carving time out of your busy show schedule to talk. Yeah, it's very early in the morning, so carving time is a right. Yeah, right. Well, I, I also know like carving time out of a schedule when you've had significant travel to get there is even more of a challenge because every minute then becomes precious. So can you kind of describe for people how long did it take you to get here? Well, my the first word that pops into my 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 mind is a lifetime, but I I think it's really it it always amazes me the whole process of packing and getting ready to go on these trips. In the beginning it was, you know, just sort of, you know, what will I need and I would think about it, but now I've got it down to such a system where I have lists of all of my quilts, how much they weigh, how many fit in a suitcase, you know, what books they correlate with, which workshops they go with, what displays they want to be. So for a trip like this, I have to start planning weeks in advance and I just stack things up and then I have to weigh them all and see how many, how many quilts will, how, how they'll all fit into those compartments. And then like, even with your clothes, like my whole shopping experience is different now because I'll pick up something, you know, Oh God, I really like this. I think, Oh wait, that's heavy. <laughs> or I'll buy something. I think this will be perfect to wear in a market. And I go, no, that won't fit in my suitcase. And uh, you know, they, so there's lots of shuffling and changing around of all the different things that I have to bring with me because this trip is quilt market where I display my new collection. Then we stay for festival, which is product related. And then I'm having a little holiday to visit my parents. So like that was three different things market, dress up, festival, be comfortable, visit the parents, go to the beach. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even so, even a smaller teaching junket where you, like, from the time you decide, okay, it's time to leave the house to the time you actually get to your destination, what's an average amount of time? Oh, it's usually about a 24-hour travel trip. You know, it's two hours to the airport, two hours till your flight leaves. Uh, the plane from, I, I generally try to fly from Sydney to Dallas. That's, this trip was 15 and a half hours. On the way back, it'll be longer because the headwinds are going against us. So that might be 16 and a half to 17. But the thing is that when you fly internationally, the planes are different than when you're flying domestically. So it's, it's not as bad as you think. And when, as you alluded to, you have a heavy schedule and you're carving time out, I've actually learned after having done that cross Pacific flight more than 55 times, wow. a lot of hours in the air. I've, I've learned that when I actually sit down on that flight, that's my time and my mind can digest all the things that have happened since my last trip. And it's, it's, it's become sort of something that I almost look forward to as weird as that is. And then when you actually get on the plane, you slip into this weird space because you can't do anything. Well, I mean, I sew on the plane and watch movies, but um, 
when it's over, when the wheels of the plane hit the ground, it's like a time warp. I, every time I think that was a time warp, how did I just exist for 15 and a half hours sitting in this seat? So that it's, it's an amazing thing because I never expected that to come in my life. Well, with 55 trips, you've got to have some sort of way to like get through the flight. <laughs> well, you know, but I'm still not a gold frequent flyer ticket person. Like even with that many flights, I still sit in the back of the plane. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. They really might need to, they need to look at those <laughs> criteria. Okay, so I know a lot of times when you travel, it's to teach and you've taught students all across the globe. Um, so how did that, how has that at all influenced your fabric design and your quilting and vice versa? Yeah, that has a massive effect on how I approach my business now and my quilting life. Uh, teaching is something that when all else goes by the wayside, teaching is something that I will continue to do for the rest of my life as long as I can get around. I really am passionate about sharing that experience of opening up a quilter's eyes and heart and mind to what their potential is. And I, I feel like when I first started Material Obsession back in 2003, we threw around the term quilt Nazi a lot, where people were intimidated about starting a quilt because they felt they had to get perfect points and everything had to be just right, absolutely perfect. And that was always a bit of a surprise to me because perfect has never been a goal for me. I've, I've always wanted to just be expressive and to do something that's interesting and captivating. And so I, you know, I used to just sort of keep my mouth shut about that. But then after 16 years of standing in the shop and dealing with customers and traveling around the world and teaching people, I realized that once you unlock that key to somebody's confidence, they become a dedicated quilter. So I like that language and it may not be the most popular role in the, um, in the, or, you know, the structure of the quilting world, but to me, it's really important. So, um, the teaching I'm letting develop, I'm doing more and more big retreats, um, this coming up, I'm doing empty spools, of course, and I'd always do like quilting by the lake and often sisters, but I'm now doing Madeline School of the Arts and a couple of other bigger retreat style um, sessions here in the States. Um, I just did Quilt Symposium in New Zealand, which was amazing. I mean, the, the Kiwis have an incredible sense of creativity, mostly because they live on this island separated from the rest of the world. So they sort of rely on their own sense of creativity, which is quite fascinating to watch. And I've taught a bit in France and other, and I will add um, probably Great Britain and a few other places coming up too. Well, and I know part of, at least based on your itinerary in the past, a lot of what you're being asked to teach is color because you're known for your sense of color. So how do you approach color when you're working on a project? Well, first of all, um, I know that I'm known for that, but I actually think that what people are seeing is how I use fabric. I'm not going to, I will start out and I might talk about a color wheel, but I think that what it comes down to is creating a line in your quilt, whether you're doing traditional piecing or modern quilting or, or art quilting, whatever category you see yourself fitting into, what you need to do is understand line. And so no matter what your color is, you have to also consider value and texture and scale and all the other things within a piece of fabric that will either blend or contrast to create that line. So getting people to think in those terms is one of my main objectives. So they understand how to control the fabric that they're using. And then uh, as far as the color, I mean, that's a harder thing to teach because you really have to get into somebody's psyche and break down their affection for color and understand that it's a tool. So it's a lot of different things that fall into that category, but that I would call working with fabric. 
Well, and so what is your, what's your best advice for people to kind of get over that color hang up and, and come to the point where they're using that as a tool? Uh, try not to match. Matching is like completely irrelevant. And I, I find that that's, that's the thing that, that's the fallback term. Oh, do these match? Well, matching means that it's more of the same thing. But if, if it's exciting a color, if you put two pieces of fabric together and they both start to jiggle and be excited, then, then you're on to something. So it's, um, just be aware and present in the moment what you're looking at and what you're doing so that you know that there's some visual interest. So, you know, when I think of matching, I think of my mom. I'd come downstairs in the morning to go to school and that, that doesn't match. And I think, but I like this together. So I guess that's the key. If you like it together, then you go forward. Gotcha. Always good advice. You better like it first. Um, well, and so also one thing that people probably know about you, but possibly don't, is that you own the internationally popular quilt shop uh, material obsession. When did you open that and why did you decide to open a shop? Um, uh, well, it was opened in 2003 and we opened the shop. Uh, every time someone asks me that question, I always think we opened it because we wanted spots and stripes. We wanted a fresh, and at that time, retro fabrics were really popular. You know, Michael Miller was doing a great line of little kids. Amy Butler came out with her first collection of fabric. Kay Facet started doing fabric. And we really wanted to be able to... Um, take the traditional feeling of quilts and add a more contemporary, colorful look to it. Um, I was also desperate to take control of my life again because I'd been a stay-at-home mom for 10 years living in another country and I needed something to give purpose and direction to my life outside of the home. So yeah, so we, um, an opportunity came up and we just started and you know, it's, I do talk about a lot that in those days, people would come in the shop and, <clears throat> excuse me, look around and just go, well, this place will never last because it was really quite different. But now I think we've set up a model that a lot of people aspire to recreate. And that's great. You know, if people like this style, then I think, I think people do like this style and now it's more popular than ever. Well, someday I'll get there. <laughs> I'm not going to say when, but someday I'll get there. Um, so what, what do you find most... I don't know, most gratifying about shop ownership? Oh, I really like the interaction with the customers. All right, you know, it's, um, it's really exciting for me to see somebody that comes in every day or somebody that comes in, like we get a lot of cruise ships to Sydney. And so, you know, if there's a quilter on a cruise ship, they'll connect with other quilters. And then all of a sudden we've got a group of five or six people coming, you know, from these cruise ships. And that's a, a kind of experience uh, that, you know, everybody's really excited to be there. Like you said, oh, I might get there one day. So it's a destination for people. But what I really like is when when I, when I someone walks in the door and I say, can I help you? And, oh, I'll just have a look. And then they tell me what they're doing and they let me work with them to, to either assess what they're doing or to pick their fabrics or to show them different options. And that's just really exciting. And um, I think it's kind of important in how I've developed my style because I've learned to put myself in their shoes. They may like colors and fabrics and styles that I'm not as comfortable working with, but I had to learn how to stand in their feet and figure out how to bring the best out of each of their situations. So that was really good experience that I can apply to teaching and writing the books and doing the fabric. Yeah. Well that, so that's the upside. What's the downside of owning a shop? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Funny question, Roxanne. Um, the downside, 
Well, I'm, I, I can't answer that question without saying that I'm a Pisces. Did you know the old adage about Pisces, you swimming up and downstream at the same time? I love the customers, but I also have a job to do. And sometimes you can't avoid the interruptions. And I have a very, oh, look, a squirrel kind of a brain. I get distracted really easily. So staying on task to accomplish things that really need to be done, ordering fabric, scheduling classes, dealing with, you know, writing patterns or whatever, those interruptions really freak out my tiny little brain. So that's one of the hardest things. And, and I think also that in this era, it's so hard to stay on top of the game. You know, social media has changed how everything operates. Customers know what they're looking for. Other shops know what everybody else is doing. So it's a really, I hate the word, but it's really competitive. So you have to work. I mean, I basically wake up thinking about cutting kits almost every day of my life. I wake up and the first thought is what was left undone yesterday. And, you know, so it has slowly but surely eaten up my entire life. I have very little else besides going to work because it's just so compelling all the time. So that's well, a good and a bad thing. That's true. Busy is good because it means you're still working. Keeps but... me out of the bars. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so how do you feel like owning a shop has influenced what you do in your fabric? Owning a shop has influenced everything in my life. Every single aspect of my life is controlled by the fact that I... Um, I work in a bit of a fishbowl. It makes me a very visible person. You know, everybody knows what I'm doing all the time. And like even, for example, you know, seven years ago when I had breast cancer, people came in, they knew everything about it. They knew all these things. They know my kids' names. They know when I travel. They know when I'm home. They know when I'm away. So that took a little bit of getting used to that, you know, it's a very public thing. And sometimes you want to be public and sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. No, just if you design your fabric differently because you're a shop owner, then you think you would if you were just designing it in a, in a different sort of environment. Um, I design. I started designing fabric to fill a gap that I saw in what was being offered and also to bring to life some of the things that I want to use as a quilter. So I try to balance what I want to create with what I think is needed. And I, it's been a really steep learning curve. And I'm not going to say that everything I've done has been a success. There are a lot of things that I thought would be really good, but for one reason or another, they didn't work. But I've now, this is my seventh collection. And I kind of, this is new vintage that I'm releasing here at market. And I feel like I've really nailed it this time. I, I like the color combinations that we're using. I like the fabrics. And yet, I sort of live in this little bubble where I think I know exactly what needs to be done. And I look at, I use large scales, I'm using plaids, I'm using stripes. And I know these are terms and words that freak people out. So I was talking about that to Carolyn, who works with me at the shop. And she's like, well, can't you change the way everybody thinks? And I just looked at her and I thought, that's always been my goal, but it's much harder than I thought. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, the shop environment does um, affect how I want the fabric to be produced yeah yeah well and one thing that um you know you work in the industry as a whole you work in so many different portions of it you teach you design you're working with manufacturers you work with us you work with publishers you own a shop you work with students um so you're really kind of part of the quilting industry as a whole kind but i know so you're all that <laughs> exactly well but your background is very diverse and you kind of came to this as a second career so you had your choice of like where to work. So why did you pick the quilting industry? Um, 
Well, it, it actually makes sense in hindsight. I, I worked in New York City for about 10 years and I started in advertising and then I moved to the fashion industry and then I got a job at Swatch Watch when it was a brand new startup company. And the philosophy that we were dealing with was, let's look at something traditional, a watch, which at the time was Timex or Rolex. Young people now wouldn't even know what that was like. And let's add color and lifestyle to it. So we... Um, made it waterproof and shock resistant. And we talked about how this product not only looked fun and different, but really suited what you wanted to do. And then we put it in the hands of trendsetters. We picked skateboarders and musicians and freestyle skiers and snowboarders and mountain bikers, all these people that were really edgy in their life. And we watched them spread our word for us. So that experience, when I actually fell into quilting, which, I mean, just to go back, I. I started quilting because I moved to another country. I had a baby. I had no friends. I had no family. I had no business, nothing except my, my little tiny unit. And when I started quilting, I could occupy my time quite happily all by myself. I didn't need any of those other things. And then quilting took me into the community and I had a quilt group and they became my sisters and my parents and my friends. And so that just sort of snowballed into the shop and then the shop snowballed into all the other things. So. It's, it has, it does make sense how it's all stepped in, but it, like, when you look at now and you look at then, that might, like, managing professional skateboarders, owning a quilt shop, it's not your first connection. Gotcha. I see this, I see the progression. That was pretty cool. Um, well, and so having so many different roles within the industry, which I will say you almost have to do to be successful. Yeah. Um, it kind of gives you a unique perspective um, as opposed to somebody who works in one portion of the industry. So how do you think seeing both sides of different fences has affected your role in the industry? I guess I'm fascinated by how many sides of the industry I can see. And I take that responsibility very seriously that I'm not only a consumer because I'm a massive quilter and I mean, I quilt every single day of my life. I'm also a shop owner. So I'm directing the traffic for my customers. I'm deciding what I want them to have. I'm deciding how I want them to use it and trying to figure out how to ease them into understanding what that will be, because sometimes it's different from what they expect. Um, As far as writing the books are concerned, as far as writing the books are concerned, I think that um, because I'm teaching and dealing with customers, I hear every day what their issues and problems and concerns are. And I want to address that. And I want to write books that have long-term meaning. I don't want to just throw something, you know, a couple of different patterns at them. I want to understand how they can make it their own and develop their own voice. Because I think one of the realizations that I had is that when you work in a large industry, which patchwork quilting is, the objective becomes how do we sell? How do we keep this machine going? How do we continue to make it a profitable industry where people want to be engaged? And I think the message that I want to convey to all my business partners is we do that by teaching quilters to be engaged in their own process. We want dedicated quilters. We don't want them just to buy a packet of fabric with all the decisions made. We want to teach them how to make those decisions so that they they want to wake up in the morning and feel confident and excited by what they're doing. So... Where I'm always looking to create a balance between a commercial industry and a community where people are constantly coming back for more. So teaching, educating, exciting, inspiring, all those things. Well, and given that, and 
everything. So how do you, where do you see the industry headed in the next handful of years? Well, one of the big observations that I've had recently is that a lot of people are cross-crafting. So I've got a lot of customers now that are doing knitting and they're doing crochet and they're doing stitching. Embroidery and stitching is huge now. We've just started a whole new component in the shop, either working with wool and embroidery or I've just started developing my own stitcheries and things because I see this activity with our hands is really important now. In the world where we live, we need to be centered and focused and present in our own lives. And life is just taking that away from us. So these kinds of crafts are really, I think, healthy mentally for people and when I mean, I'm getting off the track here, but I really get excited when somebody comes in the shop and I can see they're having a hard time in their life. And I can say, well, why don't you try doing some hexagons or why don't you pick up the stitchery or why don't you do some hand piecing? Because that meditative process in your life is really healthy. Um, as far as the industry is concerned, I think that it's really shifting, but I think there's still a lot of hope in it. I think it's we have the most exciting products that we can use. We, everything is so much easier now. We have great lighting. We have great machines. We have great fabric. We have great thread. All these things are at our fingertips. So it's still a very rich and engaging community to be a part of. So I think that will continue to grow and I think create and will continue to grow and particularly because being creative is so much fun exploring visually and mentally what we're doing it is well and so i know i know you've answered this question like 569 times <laughs> but it feels like you almost have to ask it again like with with so many different roles that you maintain um and Wait, finding time to be creative yes yeah, seriously <laughs> how do you fit this all in do you sleep i mean really uh, I come from a very long line of very busy people. My mom's the, my mom is 82 years old and she is still constantly on the go. I call her up from Australia and say, what are you doing, mom? Well, I'm very busy now. I'm about to go out and meet some new friends. And I'm like, oh my God. So <laughs> I need a lot of activity in my life. I, I have to have things to do because if I don't, my brain just starts churning and coming up with issues and problems that don't really exist. But um, I... Yeah, so that probably is the answer. But I'm also really organized for a creative person, I've got a lot of structure in my life. And I and this is a big tip. So if you're listening and you don't know how to get it all done, I plan and structure my projects on a Saturday. I get up, I go to yoga on a Saturday morning. I come home, I do a couple of light chores. I go in my studio. I might stay in there till eight or nine o'clock at night. And while I'm doing that, I'm prepping all my things so that um, Sunday I can continue on that process. Then Monday when I get home from work, because, you know, I go into the shop and I think, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I got all these things and I get home and I'm really tired. But because my stuff is prepped from the weekend, I could just pick it up and do that meditative thing. I'm planning my projects for when I have my energy and allowing the flow of my life to keep things happening. If that, does that make sense? It does, yeah. yeah. And I you can't force yourself to be, you can't be creative at night after dinner. You know, it's just not, there's no energy then. You've spent it on your whole day. So... If you understand that and recognize it for what it is, you can still do something, get something finished or accomplished. So don't ever walk into my shop if you come to visit and say, oh, I'm really busy. I don't have time for that because I'll show you busy. <laughs> I'll show you busy. <laughs> Definitely. And I won't be buying you novels for any anything, you know. I read. You do? I you read you have time to sit down and read? No, I read. I get in bed and I read for 10 minutes and I wake up later with a book on my face. <laughs> there you go. Read, yeah. Uh, well, and so this is kind of a question I end up asking pretty much everybody who's a teacher, because if you've taught for any number of years and to any number of students, something really crazy has happened. 
Have you, what's like your most memorable teaching moment that you feel comfortable sharing? Um, let's see. I, I don't know. I mean, I get so in the moment when I'm teaching that like the day ends and I just look back and I go, what just happened? So I don't really know if any particular moments ever, I could, like we just, I was recently teaching in New Zealand and we were sitting around the table telling nightmare stories about like thinking you're, you're going to a workshop on Wednesday and finding out that it's actually Tuesday or picking up my airline ticket on a Friday to see what time I leave on Tuesday and finding out I leave on Monday and I, oh my God, I almost missed the flight. (laughs) So those guys, those are the things that as teachers, like not being able to perform or forgetting a sample. Oh. Probably the most memorable um, experience I had was I was teaching a workshop someplace in Victoria, I don't know, somewhere in Australia. And this girl walked in. She said, I forgot my fabric. She said, I'm just going to run over to Spotlight, which is our Joann's. And we Mm -hmm. were sort of snobby about that. I don't go to Spotlight. I thought, oh, great. What's she going to come back with? And she came back and she said, look, this is what I got. And I looked at the pile and I was like, oh, my God. What was she thinking? (laughs) That is the weirdest pile of fabric I've ever seen in my life. Well... The quilt that she made was the most beautiful, eccentric combination of these fabrics. And I thought, I didn't, I didn't really say much to her about it, but I've never forgotten that because it just taught me that never judge a pile of fabric until a quilt is, is complete. Because you just, we think we can visualize what it's going to look like, but we can't. And even with all my experience of customers and all that, you know, and all my workshops and participants, I thought, yeah, there's always an open door. We can always do something. And also, it, in that same kind of vein, and I think it was the same workshop, this woman came to my Modern Wedge workshop, which is really about mixing lots of different fabrics together, and she brought like three different fabrics. And and this often happens. She said, oh, I've brought the wrong thing. I, I can't do what you're doing with this. I said, well, let's just cut it up into strips and create pattern. And she also made a fantastic quilt there. So there is always, there is always a positive end result we can always get there no matter what we have. So I, I think people, especially over here, people sort of freak out, oh, I don't have the right thing. I've got to go buy more. But you actually don't. You can work with what you have and come up with something that's really good. Well, and so can you tell us um, what's coming up for you in the next year? Like, what do you have going on? Um, well, <laughs> I always, well, because in Australia, Christmas is summer. So we will close the shop down in, a, in about six weeks. I close the shop for three weeks every year. And I basically don't go down my driveway for anything but yoga and groceries. And I sit in my studio for three weeks and just play with all the ideas that have accumulated over the year. Um, and then next year, I'll start with a bang. I've, um, I'm doing a new embroidery show in Australia. Um, or I'm, you know, I'll have a booth at an embroidery show. I'm teaching at Empty Spools. I have um, lots of, yeah trips and things on my agenda. So I don't actually have a book or anything like that that I'm thinking about. So maybe next year, like I'm not releasing a book. I'm not writing a book. Next year might be a little bit more relaxed. There you go. Um, Well, and so if somebody who's listening isn't familiar with you and wants to find out more about you and your work, where would they go? Oh, well, I'm an open book. I, I'm on Instagram at Matt Ob's Girl. Um, you could just search me, Kathy Dowdy or Material Obsession. Um, we have a, um, Instagram for the shop as well. I've got 
um, a website, materialobsession.com.au. And we also have a newsletter that is really informative because we talk about things that we see our customers are interested in and we, whatever we find, we put in that. And that's, I find that's really popular. People like what we're presenting to them because we sort of dig deep and, and appeal to those dedicated quilters and how to enrich their own process, not just throw product at them. Um, you know, get the product and show them how to use it. Um, but yeah, you can email me anytime. It's always there and interested to hear what people have to say or want to know. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to let you get over to the show floor because it's the first day and we haven't seen anything yet. So I know. I can't wait. I mean, so the hardest part for me is actually staying in my booth the whole time because I want to run around as a shop owner and see everything as well. And I, I don't know if you noticed yesterday, but I feel like there's a lot of really exciting things on the floor this year. There's lots of rebirth in creativity and design. So um, I'm excited to see all that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't peek at the floor yesterday. We just did a quick drop off and pick up. So it's, that'll be interesting to get over there this morning and start start fresh. Well, I, I know we're wrapping this up, but we I was in the free spirit room and I, it occurred to me at the end of the day that like, you go from Tulip Pink, who's releasing, you know, sewing machines and hardware and cutting mats and fabric. And then to somebody like Denise Burkett, who lives in a camper van and drives around Australia, and her whole schoolhouse was slides of the road and what's on the side of the road and the dawn living in Outback. And I think that kind of diversity is really interesting to, you know, to know that there's something for everybody out there. It is. It is. So we can't wait to see it. So thank you again. And I I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always fun to talk. (laughs) Thanks, Roxanne. Thanks. This is Roxanne Serta. Thanks for listening to Behind the Scenes. Want to know more about our outstanding group of authors and their books? Visit us online at CT Publishing on Instagram, Twitter, our CT Publishing channel on YouTube, or on our website at ctpub.com. 